Peter chapter 1 this morning. Sunday mornings we're studying the book of 1 Peter. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. If you just wave and get their attention, they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands so you can hear the word this morning, but also see it with your own two eyes, which is always the best way to do it. Don't ever trust anyone in the pulpit. You make sure you're checking out what's being said against the Bible in your very own hands. First Peter chapter one will be studying specifically verses four through six, but we'll pick it up in verse three to establish a little context. Peter writes by the Holy Spirit, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy, there's a lot of abundant mercy in this room this morning, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not only that, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Nothing like it in the whole wide world. And we thank you, Lord, for the double privilege of never being having to turn to it on our own, but always being able to turn and be in communion with your teacher, the Holy Spirit, and to ask him, Lord, to illuminate all of the meaning and purposes of this passage, the applications of these truths to our lives as Christians and and also, Lord, to the circumstances that we find ourselves in this morning. And so we pray that your spirit would continue to be very active now in the teaching of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Peter is writing to Christians who are... Uh, either in the middle of great suffering at the moment, or he recognizes that great, great suffering is uh, soon to approach them and enter into their lives. And he wrote this letter to them in order to provide them with needed encouragement and perspective and instruction. And when we find ourselves in the kind of trials that these Christians were facing in those days, there aren't three more important things to us at that moment in time than to receive encouragement from God, to receive perspective that only God can bring into our lives, and then the nuts and bolts practical instruction about how to live and conduct ourselves in all the various relationships and circumstances of our life to know that we aren't going to then flub this thing and make it even more difficult than it already is. And so the, this book is absolutely priceless uh, to us. He began this letter by reminding them and us of, of the blessings that we possess as Christians, blessings that lie beyond the reach of any circumstance that we might face in this fallen world. No circumstance can 
take these things away from us or move these blessings or promises that God has given to us completely unaffected by life's circumstances. They are God-given, and because they're God-given, nothing in this world can take them away. They are absolutely sure and immovable. The world didn't give them, and so the world can't take them away from us. Not Caesar Nero, not the devil, not the whole world, all put together. These things are ours, always ours, because they lie beyond the reach of any circumstance we will ever face in this fallen world and our journey from where we are today into the very glory of heaven. Notice the blessings are listed in verses 3 through 5. And last week we looked at the first of these blessings as we studied verse 3, where Peter declared that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. No matter what our trials are, no matter what our difficulties are in life, we are born again. We possess everlasting life, the Bible says, as Christians and our risen Savior has conquered death for us. The second blessing he listed in verse 4 is the fact that each of us as Christians now possesses an inheritance as a result of our faith in Jesus. Now, that's pretty exciting uh, to be in somebody's will. That somebody loves us enough or cares about us enough to uh, include us in their will and to provide us with a portion of their inheritance, and especially when that someone is God. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty good will to be included in, and that's our portion as Christians. Now, what is this inheritance that Peter's talking about here? Well, it refers to all of our future in, in heaven and all of the blessings which await us there. And it speaks uh, of, of everything that we have that's been provided for us in Christ Jesus that is ours for eternity. But I think it speaks supremely to every Christian of what we consider to be the most important thing in life, and that is it speaks of God himself. Uh, no inheritance, no what would eternal life be if it wasn't eternal life in fellowship with God in heaven? What would streets of gold mean to us at all if God wasn't in heaven? It's the fact that he's there that makes heaven the place that it is and makes it the place that we look forward to. David wrote of this inheritance in Psalm 16, verse 5. He said, O oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. David didn't think of his inheritance in any kind of physical terms supremely. The only thing that mattered to him is that here this relationship that he enjoyed with God so wonderfully and so beautifully in this life. In the words of the Apostle Paul, through a glass darkly will one day give way to a relationship with God face to face. And that's the, the inheritance that David considered to be most important. And I know that we do so also. I can't wait to see him face to face. Now Peter's description 
of the inheritance. Uh, he gives in verse four and he kind of contrasts it with earthly inheritances. This eternal uh, inheritance, he says, is incorruptible. It's, in other words, it's not subject to decay. Nothing can ruin it or spoil it in any way. It's undefiled. In other words, it's, it's completely pure, completely unstained by sin. And this inheritance hasn't come, you know, like maybe through great inheritances that people have gotten through life where they gained maybe the uh, vast sum of money for the family on the basis of, of illicit activity or sinful kind of businesses and all. It's not tainted by any of that kind of thing. It's completely uh, pure. And nobody will fight over the inheritance <laughs> in that impure way that happens so often uh, here in this world. He says it does not fade away. In other words, it's eternal. It'll never dim or grow old. Any physical inheritance we get in this world, ultimately it dims, it decays, like everything else in this fallen world. But that inheritance will never uh, be subjected to that. So, in other words, what Peter is saying here is whatever material things that these Christians were being denied because of their faith in Jesus, all of that would be made more than made up for ultimately in heaven in terms of both spiritual and physical perfection. Peter then went on to say, well, I mean, there's no sense in talking about how wonderful this inheritance is unless he also tells us that it's reserved in heaven for you. And the idea of having reservations, that this is reserved in heaven for us, means it's absolutely sure, it's waiting for us, and it's absolutely safe under God's guarding. There's the old joke about uh, two men who were talking at the funeral of a rich man, and one asked the other, how much did he leave? And the other guy said, Everything. <laughs> That's the way that it is. Most people lose everything at death. Others gain everything. And for Christians, life is just starting as we move into the eternal realm. Earthly inheritances are never a sure thing. I mean, people can contest the will. Um, there can be all kinds of uh, complications in terms of when the will was written or even when it was executed and then market forces come to bear and perhaps real estate prices go down or stock prices go down or you get the bill from the lawyer or whatever it might be. And so all of these things are kind of in an ebb and a flow. And, and so they're not always the sure thing that they appear to be. But this inheritance is a sure thing. It isn't altogether unlikely that some of these Christians had been written out of their family wills because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That happened a lot in the ancient world. Happens a lot in the world today. Not so much in the United States, but in other parts of the world. And Peter reminds them of the inheritance for the child of God that no one can take away the inheritance that is sure. Now in verse 5, he lists the third blessing, and that is the fact that we are kept by the power of God through faith. In other words, what good is an inheritance in heaven if we don't have absolute confidence that we're going to one day be in that heaven to receive that inheritance? And so here Peter gives an 
equally great assurance of the fact that we'll be in heaven uh, as he gave the assurance that there's an inheritance waiting for us there. And so Peter encourages us with that fact that not only is our inheritance secure and being kept for us in heaven, but God is keeping us secure for the inheritance. He's going to be faithful to deliver us one day into the glory of heaven. And he tells us that we're being kept, and that word kept is a very important word uh, to notice there. It's a military term that was uh, used for a military garrison or a military force that would surround a city and would protect that city from any kind of, of attack. And so you think about yourself being in a city in the ancient world, ancient world, a very unstable place in those days. And if you lived in a city that had a great military that surrounded that city, it would fill you up with tremendous peace and tremendous uh, confidence as a result. And we are, Peter is saying here, surrounded by, we are garrisoned about by the power of God himself. And that word kept uh, is, a, is a present participle. In other words, it implies action that is constantly going on. I, I, I mean, the only reason we survived this last week to sit here today is because of the activity of God surrounding our lives in, in keeping us. Here we have the reassurance that God himself will make sure that we make it from here, from this world, into heaven. It's not dependent on our resolve, but upon his resolve. It's not dependent upon our strength, but upon his strength. And our faith, he says, in Jesus has so united us with him that he will not let Anything keep us from being physically united with the Lord one day. I'll tell you, these verses in 1 Peter chapter 1 are among the strongest in the Bible to speak of the security of our salvation as Christians. In fact, the only stronger statement that I can think of concerning the security of a believer's salvation comes from the Lord Jesus himself in a statement that he made to the Jewish religious leaders of the day in John chapter 10. He said in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, speaking of his followers, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And so Jesus declares of us as Christians that we have, present tense, everlasting life. So often we think that we're going to have everlasting life once we die and enter into eternity. But the Bible teaches that as Christians we possess Everlasting life right now. For God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we do. Jesus declared that we shall never perish. That's Jesus' promise to us. 
How long is never? It's an awful long time. Jesus said that we are in his hands and no one is able to snatch us out of his hands. Again, no circumstance, no Nero, no devil, no anything in this world will be able to snatch us out of his hand because his grip is greater than all and our salvation is dependent upon Jesus' grip and not our own. We are told by Jesus that we're in the Father's hands and no one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand either. This passage is a great comfort to me in this, in this uh, vein of the security of our salvation because Jesus is telling us here that our salvation, the sureness of our salvation, are in the hands not only of Jesus, not only of the Father, but they are as sure as the grip of both the Father and the Son. I always think when I read about this of the Allstate commercial, the good hands people. You're in good hands with Allstate. I'll tell you, there are better hands than even Allstate. That's to be in the hands of the Father and of the Son. You cannot, Jesus cannot communicate in greater strength how sure our salvation is as Christians, than to tell us that it's as sure as the grip of the Father and the Son upon our lives. That's a strong, strong grip. Those are the good hands people, the real good hands people. Now, our salvation isn't if or maybe or perhaps or I hope you make it their salvation. It's a sure salvation and Jesus is saying, having become a member of his flock, he now keeps us secure. I'm okay. I'm not having a moment or anything. You just relax. I reserve the right to have one anytime I want. Other passages in the Bible that speak of this. The Bible says that our salvation is so sure, our future place in heaven is so sure, that God speaks of it in the past tense. He already sees us there. Even we, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that our salvation is so sure that he already sees us glorified and in heaven. Romans chapter 8. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purposes, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, speaking of us as Christians, these he also glorified, past tense, already sees us in the glory of heaven. Jesus said in John chapter 5, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me 
has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Again, Jesus in John chapter 6, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. He's not going to lose a single one of us. He's not going to go, oops, where did I put Kyle? It's going to happen. Paul writing of this, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. I've only got about 80 more, so just relax. But it, just to let this reinforce this single great truth and to realize this isn't just found sporadically in the Bible. It's the tone of the Bible related to our salvation. Ephesians 1, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed... You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And then in Romans chapter eight, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Yes, it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. The Apostle Paul, in the empowering of the Holy Spirit, literally ransacks the universe in an effort to find someone or something that can separate us from the love of God, and he comes up empty. And finally, Jude. Verse 24 and 25, now to him who is able to keep you from falling and further to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Now, in the light of. These passages from God's word, no Christian should ever, ever waste a single moment of time in our lives doubting whether we have everlasting life or wonder, wondering whether we're going to be delivered into the glory of heaven one day. Our salvation is absolutely sure. It cannot be any more sure than it is. And the reason that it's sure is because salvation is a free gift. And it's given to us by God as a result of Jesus' work upon the cross. When Jesus died upon the cross, one of the cries that he made from the cross is, It is finished. He has provided mankind 
with a finished salvation. It would be very, very disheartening if he had said, it has begun. I've given you a good start to your salvation. Don't lose it or don't mess it up now and be good for the rest of your life and you might get in. Now, he knew us a lot better than than to give us that kind of a salvation. He looks at you and he looks at me and he said, I better give him a finished salvation, an unflubbable salvation. I don't know that that's a real word or anything, but you understand what I'm saying. An unfumbleable. Boy, I'm on a roll here with words that. Sometimes people get a, a little uncomfortable with giving Christians that kind of assurance concerning their salvation. In fact, some of you might be uncomfortable even uh, at this point of the sermon this morning yourself. And the reason sometimes some Christians get a little uncomfortable with giving Christians that kind of assurance concerning their salvation is because they think that without a little bit of fear, uh, without introducing a little bit of uncertainty in people, Christians' hearts concerning uh, their salvation, then Christians will just automatically lapse into a life of sin or carnality or carelessness related to uh, being holy or walking uh, intimately with the Lord, obediently with the Lord. And so you kind of have to keep them dangling over hell a little bit. And so you've got churches all around the world that have people getting saved week after week after week because they sinned uh, in the course of the previous Weak. And so there's always that little bit of fear that is is used to control people. And uh, so uh, and, and they and they don't want to emphasize the security of the believer and the strength that it is uh, in in the, the word, because there's that idea. Well, what they're going to do is they're going to think, well, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. So it doesn't matter what kind of life I live. And and so you've got to keep them in line with this fear. But the Bible teaches that real Christianity is a life of obedience lived in response to this very rich, free, secure, undeserved salvation that God has provided for us. The Bible says that we love him. This is the motivation of our love for him. We love him because he first Loved us and he loves us because we're so lovable. No, (laughs) that would put us in serious trouble. He loves us, the Bible says, because he's love. First John chapter four. And we have and we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And I'll tell you, the Apostle Paul, he really got this. You think about the incredible life that the Apostle Paul lived in his service to the Lord. And you think, what could make a guy like that tick? What could keep him going the way that he did all the way to a martyr's death? He just every hour of every day just consumed with the things of the Lord and faithful, unfailingly faithful. It would seem, and and we wonder what in the world was the great motivation that moved him forward in the way that he moved forward in life. And we don't have to guess what that motivation 
was he tells us clearly in his letter to the church at Corinth, his second epistle, chapter five, verse 14. He said, for the love of Christ constrains us. And it's talking about the love that Christ had for him and for us in saving us and in forgiving us. One of the greatest theologians, obviously, in the history of the world. He had a great love for God. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind. He loved the Lord with all of his mind. But he loved the Lord with all of his heart. And the thing that he could never shake, never moved away from, he never intellectualized his Christian faith. He was always undone with the thought of the greatness of the love of Christ to die for someone like him, that he might be saved. He said, it's the love of Christ for me that constrains me to do what it is that I do. You want to know what the motivation is that's behind the life? He said, that's the motivation that's behind the life. And he obeyed and he served the Lord out of a response to that love. You know, the hardest thing in the world to sin against is rules. (laughs) No. People sin against rules all the time. Rules are easy to sin against. Commands are easy to sin against. The hardest thing in the world to sin against is love. Because it makes you feel like such an ingrate for doing so. It shames us. It makes us feel terrible to disobey in a way that nothing else does the sin against love and against someone who we know without a doubt loves us in life that's the hardest thing in the world uh, to do and so a response to God's love is the highest motivation for living an obedient, faithful life as a Christian. We don't obey to get something from him. We don't obey under some kind of a grinding obligation, you know. This is, I have to do this. We do it as an expression of our worship, our thanksgiving to him, for the greatness of his love for us. That is Christianity, a response to what God has first done for us. Now, the entirety of these opening verses of First Peter are given to encouraging us as Christians in the sureness of our salvation. So we ask ourselves, some of you, if I've lost in the first five minutes, you're bored to tears. You say, where in the world are you going with all of this, reading all of those verses? To make this great point, he says a lot of things here to make one single great point to the suffering Christian. And to any Christian. And he's the great point that he is making is concerning the sureness of our salvation. And why would he make so much of this subject at the outset of the letter in order to drive home that single great point to suffering Christians? The one thing that we must never allow suffering or trials or difficulties or life's experience to do in our lives is to get us to doubt our salvation or to doubt God's love for us and his eternal plan for our lives. And it tells me the fact that Peter would 
by the Spirit of God, camps so heavily on this so early in the letter that God must know from his throne in heaven, he must see a fair amount of it. And so he is writing here to head that off in any of our lives. Perhaps in some of our lives today, what we're facing on a physical level, financial level, persecution for our faith, relational level in life, whatever it might be, you might be facing this kind of thing even today. Others say, well, I don't know, this is just like a, just a theoretical Bible study to me. No, you'll suffer one day. And you might find yourself in a place of suffering one day where it might even tempt you to cause to wonder about the sureness of your salvation. And God will bring your mind back to this passage and he'll comfort you through this passage. There's a great tendency in times of great suffering to think, how can I really be saved if I'm covered with pitch? And lit on fire in Nero's gardens. How can I really be saved if I'm being fed to lions or torn apart by wild beasts in order to provide amusement for the masses of Rome? Surely it's an indication that I'm not truly loved by God and thus I'm not truly saved. And there's a great tendency among so many to draw a connection between my circumstances and God's attitude toward me and when my circumstances are favorable then I conclude that God loves me and my salvation is sure and when my circumstances are marked by adversity and even suffering then I conclude that God doesn't love me he's upset with me and surely it means that my salvation is even up in the air and the apostle Peter jumps in and he interrupts that kind of thinking and he declares from the pages of scriptures and he and shouts as loud as he can here. No, that isn't true. And this from a man who would ultimately end up martyred for his faith by being crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to be crucified right side up the position in which his savior was uh, killed. And then Peter redirects our thinking away from the temporal hardship of our circumstances and toward the blessings, again, that lie beyond the effective reach of anything that we will ever face in this life. And thus, these are always a cause for joy. We've been born again. And we have a living hope. We possess an inheritance in heaven. It's waiting for us there. And we will one day receive that inheritance because God Almighty himself will keep us through this life and personally deliver us into the heaven to come. And so it's a cause for rejoicing, he tells us here in this passage. Notice he says in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though for now. And now for a little while, if need be, you are grieved by various trials. That word rejoice, it speaks of, in the original language, it speaks of extreme joy expressing itself externally in an exuberant triumph of joy. In other words, it's just praise the Lord you know, and hollering it at the top of your lungs. That's the emotion 
spiritually that Peter is experiencing as he writes these words and as he thinks about these priceless blessings that are ours. In closing, I want to do want to just mention <clears throat> that there is a certain kind of person who should be careful not to glean a false sense of security from Peter's teaching here. And that's the person who professes to be a Christian, but they don't live a life that is even remotely marked by obedience to God's word. James said of this person, he said, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? We are not saved by our works or human effort. But someone who is truly born again will have works as a result of having been born again. It is impossible for God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit to come into a human life without a change being produced in that human life. And so true faith will always be marked by a changed life, not a perfect life, but by a changed life as the Holy Spirit then changes us from glory to glory into the image of Christ. So this tremendous passage about the security of the believer's salvation. But if a person sits in this room or anywhere where my voice would go in this Bible study, and at the age of 8 or 13 or 40 or whatever, some kind of a profession of faith was made in Christ, but that life has never changed. There's no indication that that life is under new management, the management of the Holy Spirit. You shouldn't take the assurances that we've spoken about today as an assurance for your life. What you need to do is to settle the issue of Jesus' lordship in your life so that these things then can become your portion as well and to become truly saved and born again today. And so as we look at this, this passage here today, and, and uh, I've entitled it Reassurance Regarding a Sure Salvation. And sometimes we just need a reassurance, depending on what we're facing in life, concerning the surety of our salvation. Peter knew we would need it. And so it must be true of our lives. And so this is this reassurance of a sure salvation. How do you get your life into God's hands, which is, of course, the surest, most secure place that we can plant our lives in the craziness of this world? How does a person do that? How do I enter into a relationship with God? By confessing my sin to him, to the fact that I am a sinner, by asking forgiveness for my sin and putting my trust, my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of that sin. And as I put my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin this morning, God Almighty will come into your life this morning and you'll be born again by the Holy Spirit. And then this assurance will be yours and your life will now be in the surest hands that they can be 
and the fallenness of this world. There are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service. They're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. They would love to pray with you this morning to receive the Lord. If you've never done that, would like to do that this morning. They also would love to pray with you for anything that's going on in your life today that you would like prayer for. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Father, we give you praise as Peter directed us here in this passage, though we might be somewhat subdued externally by personality and makeup, Lord, inside of our hearts, there's a Holy Ghost hoedown that occurs when we think about these things, how blessed we are, the confidence that we have that we have that inheritance, that you are our inheritance, that we will one day be in heaven with you to enjoy all of the fullness and all of the glory of it. And then, Lord, to have the added reassurance and the craziness of this world, Lord, that you personally are going to guard us and keep us through this life and bring us into that heaven and into that face-to-face relationship one day in that heaven itself. And we thank you, Lord, for how you have instructed the Apostle Peter here to look at the security of our salvation from every angle imaginable so that we can be at rest in that area of our life as we face so much fallenness in this pilgrimage that we are on, Lord, as we make our way from here into the heaven that we're being prepared for. Thank you, Lord, for this passage and what it does in our spirit, in our mind, in our heart, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.